maybe some chain restaurants sort of did a deep dive into how Chinese American restaurants, mom and pop shops, are some of the most efficient business models in the world. They would learn some things. On the other hand, of course, mom and pop shops, if they were to get a sense of how um, these gigantic central kitchens or commissary kitchens worked for um, big sit-down chain restaurants, um, they would have a better sense of how to better organize their pantry. Probably a very practical idea, um, as well as how to set up a HACCP plan if they wanted to um, launch uh, consumer goods for nationwide delivery. Um, you know, like there are a lot of sort of like sort of business opportunities, I think, that um, uh, different parts of the industry could learn from each other. Hi, everyone, and welcome to Inner Wealth, the Forbes Ignite podcast. I'm your host, Nicole Kakal, CEO of Forbes Ignite. And every week I'll be sharing with you my conversations with unique, creative, and innovative people across all different industries. These are people who are intellectually curious explorers who are also redefining what it means to be successful today. From personal to professional, we cover it all to understand what drives our guests to blaze their own trails and create nimble solutions within the industries that touch each of our lives. Our guest today is Lucas Sin, who is a chef and co-founder of Junza Kitchen based in New York City. When I spoke to Lucas, it was during a very interesting time when the city first started its quarantine. His restaurant is set up like a startup, so they've been able to make decisions fairly quickly in ways that foster collaboration in the community. Since then, he's been thinking of ways to innovate within the industry and push the boundaries further, not just in Chinese-American cooking, but to create a better forward-thinking system. I loved talking with Lucas about interdisciplinary collaboration and applying design thinking to the food industry. He has an incredibly fresh perspective that's so welcomed during a time that begs for new thinking, courage to experiment, and just try something new. I know you're going to love what he has to say. Here's our chat. What would be really interesting is if we were able to catch up on what you're doing now, because I know since the last time we spoke, you were featured on The New Yorker, you were on IG Live. I mean, you've been pretty much doing everything. So yeah, teach us how, Lucas, teach us how. Um, I have no clue how to teach you how, but I can tell you what we've been doing, um, briefly speaking. Well, since the uh, coronavirus pandemic um, hit the U.S., in particular uh, New York, um, me and my restaurants and my colleagues have been working really hard to figure out how to, pivot isn't quite the right word, but we've been trying to figure out how to make the best out of the situation. At the restaurant, we you know, did a lot of what other restaurants are doing. We slimmed down our menu. Uh, we changed a lot of our backup house operations procedures. Um, we upped a lot of our um, standards on uh, cleanliness and hygiene. Um, we've been partnering a lot with hospitals and other um, organizations that work with people in need to provide meals. Um, we've launched a, um, a share a meal program for people to donate for those meals, for example. Um, and we've also, on top of that, tried to um, stay optimistic and hopeful during this coronavirus pandemic. At the end of the day, I, I've said this to myself and to everybody that I've seen for the last couple of weeks, we're in the hospitality industry and we um, are tasked to take care of people. On top of that, the it's a weird little industry where since the beginning of time, it's strived off of uh, 
optimism and the kindness of strangers and creativity and collaboration. So what that means for us is that we've been doing things like distance dining. So distance dining is a three course tasting menu that's delivered to New Yorkers doors every Friday. It comes with a side of IG live. So on Instagram, we walk people through how to plate that food that we've sent to them to recreate some of that restaurant experience. But perhaps more importantly, we talk about the inspiration behind the food because the menu is changes every week and the menu devised with Uh, another chef in tow or another collaborator, another partner. So for example, um, this week, our dinner is a Chinese Vietnamese dinner. Our goal is to look at how Chinese food and Vietnamese food connect. And we're working with a very small, um, but new up and coming startup called Omsom, which is launching a bunch of marinades and sauces, CPG products, as well as Madame Vo, which is basically everybody's favorite Vietnamese restaurant in the East Village. So um, we're working with friends of ours, but you know, we sit and we talk and we figure out what the historical relationship between Chinese and Vietnamese food is, where did it come from, how does Chinese food influence Vietnamese cooking, and vice versa. We come up with this menu that, at the end of the day, the only thing we're hoping for, other than people to find the food delicious and nourishing, is that, oh, you know, Chinese food and Vietnamese food are both a little bigger than I thought, that um, the world is a wild and wonderful place and food moves in interesting ways. So, you know, that's basically most of, a lot of the distance dining stuff that we've been um, I love that. About. Yeah, it's been a lot of fun. And, you know, I've spoken with a lot of people about it. And some people find it interesting that now is a really great time to talk about the nuances of uh, Chinese culture, right? The global reach and influence of Chinese food. At the end of the day, Chinese people move around the world a lot because there are a lot of Chinese people. And they've historically been people that are movers. And when people move, food moves recipes move, techniques move. And when they come into new places, there are new ingredients, so new cuisines develop. I'm really interested in this idea that Chinese food has almost touched every other culture. As a result, every other culture has almost always touched Chinese cooking. So there's this sort of like weird, but really, really interesting evolution of Chinese food by virtue of that movement. Right. I don't, that's not weird at all. I mean, I think that's just the natural progression of what happens when there's a lot of cross-pollination of different ideas, especially, especially in a culinary world. And so what, I, what I'm hearing is basically through your distance dining, you are essentially talking or I don't know if it's a brainstorming group or if but it's like a, it's like a perfect way to be able to, to work with your friends who are all rallied around the same yeah. cause, right? But at the same time, these are all things that everyone has top of mind. And you're taking a specific culture, like linking Chinese food with Vietnamese cuisine mm-hmm. and dissecting it in a way where it makes sense to be able to tell that story. What other examples have you done prior to the Vietnamese and Chinese cuisine? Yeah, so one of my favorites was, uh, one of the first early ones was, uh, and it's on the top of my my mind because we were on CNN uh, yesterday um, for a Chinese-Filipino dinner. My food designer, uh, LJ, who's on the food team, he's Filipino and Chinese-Filipino food is a wonderful examination of how certain cuisines are just fundamentally based on the idea of fusion. So Filipino cooking really is a a triage of sort of like Aboriginal or I guess like Afghanistan Filipino cooking um, and uh, Chinese influence through trade and Spanish influence through colonization. So those three really mix together to make really wonderful dishes. And the hypothesis for that dinner was that there is no talk of Chinese Filipino food without Chinese Filipino 
you know, Spanish food. Arroz caldo is like a really good example of a congee that, um, you know, is, is the comfort food for Filipinos. Eaten very similarly to uh, Chinese cooking, right? uh, to the Chinese congee, right? It's got egg in it, which is a little bit weird for Chinese people. It's usually it's finished with calamansi um, uh, and fish sauce sometimes. So like uh, there are little variations, but on top of that, the dish is a Spanish word. Like, why isn't it Chinese? Why isn't it like jok or kanji? Why isn't it um, a Tagalog word? I am so glad that you brought that up because uh, I, I don't know if I told you before, I am 100% Filipino. And mm-hmm. when I try to explain Filipino cuisine to other people that have never had it, first of all, I ask what rock are they you know, living under? Yeah. Second of all, <laughs> yeah. um, I love that you brought up arroscaldo because that is personally my comfort food when I'm sick. I mean, I won't eat anything else other than that. Yeah. And when you mentioned, um, I'm sure you know, pancit. We did a pancit for our first course with a shrimp head stock. Interesting for pancit because uh, pancit, the word pancit comes from the Hokkien word pianisit, which is pian um, uh, or like yeah, uh, casual, convenient eating. But obviously it's morphed into... Uh, in the Philippines, pancit generally refers to noodles. They also kind of refer to those eateries, right? It's like this whole genre of convenient eating came from pancit. What did we do for a dessert? I think we did a coconut, maybe a coconut with uh, banana, taro, I forget. But um, yeah, that was one of my, to this day, one of my favorite dinners so far. The week before was New American Chinese, which I think was the most, in some ways difficult, but also really fun uh, dinner. So. American Chinese culinary history is kind of a story that everybody at this point has heard. Chinese people go to California basically in the 50s or so and the railroad road workers and laborers primarily and they are missing homes so they make food with whatever they have and then blah blah blah, a couple hundred years pass and then you get chop suey, you get crab rangoon. It's just, you know, that story of people who didn't know how to cook. But that to me is sort of a very elementary understanding of Chinese American cuisine because what we've learned cooking this sort of globalized Chinese food for these dinners in the U.S. is that we find that there are two approaches to writing these menus. One is to look at Chinese Filipino, or actually Chinese Puerto Rican is a really good example. One way is to look at how Chinese people are cooking for Puerto Ricans in Puerto Rico. Another way to do it is to look at how Chinese people are cooking for Puerto Ricans in uh, Sunset Valley, in Brooklyn, in East Harlem. And there's this convergence of cultures in cities like New York that adds a sort of like third prong to the um, development and the evolution of this cuisine. So our hypothesis for the new American Chinese dinner was that you cannot address Chinese American cooking without addressing sort of the global reach within the US of Chinese American cuisine. So, you know, like Puerto Ricans like to order very different things than uh, African Americans or uh, Jewish Americans do from Chinese restaurants. And so we were looking at some of those themes and actually the, some of those dishes have been popular enough that we started a sub pop-up um, where we're, we've been serving Chinese American classics um, out of one of our locations, specific secret menu, chicken wing, fried rice and ribs and that sort of thing. Uh, yeah, we're the only people stupid enough to open a restaurant during a pandemic within our own restaurant but you know we we were lamenting that you know on one hand the food that we've been doing is delicious but you can't get a bowl of pork fried rice in manhattan so wouldn't it be like now is a pretty good time to start seeing how sort of like the next version or rather the next iteration of chinese american cooking how, how would it fit into the market i always thought chinese cuisine was so special it was because 
for the exact same reason that you mentioned that it doesn't really matter geographically where you might have you might have a taste of a little bit of a specific type of Chinese cuisine because Chinese cuisine is very vast. It's not kung pao chicken and it's not <laughs> general yeah. sauce, and <laughs> so there's a lot to learn about it. And there's always a little it's a little bit of a different like tweak or a different flavor depending on what city you get it in. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. What ecosystem essentially it comes from? Because you first of all. The best way to learn about the people or about a culture is through the food. I have always defaulted to that type of thinking. But more specifically, you can learn a lot about what's happening in that specific ecosystem within, like, large metropolitan areas, like New York City or Los Angeles or San Francisco, what have you. There's always like a different little, diff- like, there's like a difference in flavor, not flavor, but like, what I mean, what caters specifically to the population there. And it's so versatile and it's so, you're able to just cater to that very, I would say like very nimbly. And I think that speaks volumes to what you told me about before when you launched John Z Kitchen. Mm -hmm. And I think that's a really special story. And how long have you guys been around so far? So the first restaurant opened in 2015, in October 2015 in New Haven. Yeah, so that's, I mean, in the grand scheme of things, that's not that long ago. It feels like a long time ago. (laughs) You know, if you think about five years and you dissect that, I mean, you guys have grown a lot within the last five years. And when you compare that to like, let's say some other fast casual establishments within New York City, that's mm-hmm. not a lot of time. And you're like up here. Already. So, I mean, that's... No, I mean, <laughs> the cool thing is we've built Jinza Kitchen, um, the company, like a startup. And we internalized a lot of practices early on of sort of innovative startups to and sort of being nimble um, dexterity is a huge part of it Um, uh, you know that's what we've been talking about the last couple of weeks is uh, interdisciplinary thinking and you know being willing and able to uh, think outside of the box Um, you know it's and that rings particularly true the last couple of weeks. Um, a lot of these different programs that we've launched, but even the programs that we're talking about that we have, have not launched, everything from uh, grocery delivery services to how to better utilize social media to create more local, hyper-local communities. We're looking at aspects of, or what types of flavors and what types of products seem to be extra sticky post crisis. Um, you're comparing uh, post 9-11 New York to to the financial crisis of 2008, to SARS in Hong Kong in 2003, to what China is doing two months ahead of us. You know, so um, it's, 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 I think we've been very lucky that everybody on the team at Genza has um, been so willing and so able to jump into that line of thinking, um, which has allowed us to change a lot. And, and I know four or five years um, have already passed and it might be a short amount of time, but I can only anticipate that four or five years down the road, it'll be even more different that we will, it's, that, that we might even be in a totally different um, industry or a di- rather different section of the industry. Um, we probably will still be making food, but the food might look different. Our customers might be different. Anything can change. No, and I, I love how you mentioned just honestly using interdisciplinary thinking and um, approaches to be able to navigate these really volatile uncertain times. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm sure you hear that a lot. <laughs> and um, I, I think while what makes this so special is that while so many, so many of us are really focused on, I mean, we can't help it. Many of us 
are focused on the negative and we talk about things that could happen, things that could change, but you guys are actually living it and you're doing something about it. And I think that speaks to the type of mindset that your team has specifically with using design thinking for food service. And I think that's a really powerful tool for those who don't know, design thinking is a tool, but it is not a means to an end. It's supposed to be able to guide a way of thinking so that you you can take inspiration from different analogs, from different industries. And so do you have a few examples of what has helped you maybe when you guys are coming up with your distance dining or maybe some of the other programs you launched? I actually gave a, I was speaking to a large group of uh, Columbia students for a psychology conference a week or two weeks ago. And the question they posed was, why the heck do you have a background in cognitive science uh, while you're, you're a chef? And uh, the short answer is that a cognitive science, more than probably most mm-hmm. academic fields, is based on this idea of um, interdisciplinary thinking. So from there, my favorite example would be um, uh, you know, some biologists strapped sticks to ants um, to figure out how the human mind works. Um, it's, it's like that type of thinking that is so inspiring. So how do we break this down? For A good example is for something like this in signing is I used to do these tasting menus called um, Chef chef study, chef's table. Um, and they were kind of like this in dining, but they were in real life. You sit down five to seven courses. And we did this dinner um, uh, that was in celebration of the change of seasons, the spring and the elements. And when we're thinking about the elements, um, it's important to think about um, uh, Chinese philosophy and Chinese history. So there's this book written in 13, probably in the th- in 1330, so 700 years ago, um, called uh, in English, the best translation is like um, the necessary eating and drinking for the emperor. And it's this book that was written by somebody who would be from modern day Turkey, but was the um, pharmacist or rather the, the pharmacist and therefore the doctor and the chef and that sort of thing for the emperor in the Yuan dynasty. And in this book, um, it uh, there are multiple scrolls and one of the scrolls is dedicated to sort of ideas of uh, science, right? So for science, they meant if you were to eat a horse with a black head, do not eat, make sure that the horse doesn't have a white body uh, and vice versa. <laughs> if the emperor has had alcohol, do not sleep facing north. And so that's their idea of science, right? Um, but that plus the idea of the five elements that each of the five elements fire, water, for example, are connected to specific organs and specific uh, movements of the body, um, to specific flavors, specific Mm -hmm. colors, specific um, uh, uh, textures and that sort of thing. And plants would infer that there is some sort of like interconnected sort of like universe. Um, And you can look at that sort of old scientific knowledge and pair it with uh, culinary principles to say, what if we um, uh, did something like the a Peking duck dish that would have been from 700 years ago, which is a recipe that's inside of that book that utilizes uh, onions, cardamom, uh, onions and coriander, um, and it's roasted. It's a roasted duck inside of a lab stomach. So um, that's a philosophical principle of the elements plus the science of how you should cook things, plus the culinary science of how it's most delicious, um, plus the current context of us cooking it in the modern day despite it being a 700 year old recipe. So you bring all of those ideas together to make a delicious dish, but all of that is just to say that 
even that when you're cooking for the emperor in the Yuan Dynasty, um, this is how much they pay, one would pay attention to how that food is put together. Um, and it's sort of a, it's a historical example of how, um, on one hand, all of these fields can converge. And in the modern day, it's an example for us that if we look deeper into history, um, we can inform our cooking today. What are some of the questions that you have that are really top of mind for you right now? So especially in light of the recent pandemic, um, I think the question is how are restaurants going to survive and reopen um, after this? Um, but also, I think that question is related to how are um, old restaurants, that, like pre-existing restaurants going to survive, but also how are new restaurants going to open? My, my, my gripe with a lot of, um, uh, how do I put this, my, my, my problem and or a rather big obstacle that I find is that there isn't a lot of cross-pollination between the different types of restaurants. Maybe the hospitality industry is a massive one, but um, oh, fine dining restaurants don't often talk to mom and pop shops. Um, hospi- uh, hotels don't often talk to um, large chain restaurants and vice versa. I think um, in the news, we've definitely seen that a lot of the conversations uh, between government, for example, and industry um, seem to assume that all of the whole restaurant industry is one. Um, and that certainly isn't the case. As we develop a, this sort of like playbook for how to open restaurants in the modern day, I think it's important to draw inspiration and ideas um, and resources from in all directions. On the other hand, we might come to conclude that there is very little in common between Again, example, mom and pop shop and big chain restaurant. Mm. That we therefore might need to do better to segment the industry. A lot of these conferences about the food industry that I've been to, um, in my opinion, have failed to address that. I think the fallacy is that these industries continue to operate as they should just because it's been that way for so long. Historically, right. it's just always been that way. And so there's been less incentive for them to change. I think a lot about how... Um, there has been, in my opinion, relatively little software and hardware innovation for restaurant use, whether right. it's inventory management software or it's um, engineering for deep fryer cleaners. There's right. <laughs> relatively n- not a lot in, in no small part because there's a lot to understand and um, it's, it just all comes down to um, something that is so real life and it has to be tangible. The food needs to be good, the food needs to be hot. Yeah. It needs to be, you know, it needs to be eaten at the right time by the right person. So like just very basic concerns that um, I think a lot of other industries looking into disrupt and to help uh, and to improve the food industry uh, struggles with. So, uh, yeah. So I was talking with a really good friend of mine that's out in Hawaii and he was describing to me the business model of the restaurant that he runs. So his restaurant is the only standalone restaurant that I know of that is 100% owned by a grocery chain. This one is completely owned by a supermarket chain based in Hawaii. Um, and they give him agency and free reign to be able to not exclusively buy supply only from that chain, but to support local farmers because everyone knows buying locally is better and um, that the product is better too. What are your thoughts on that? Have you heard of any other examples like that? Do you think 
do you think restaurants like that are better positioned to survive? And do you think more restaurants should exist with that business model? I, I'm not very um, well versed uh, with grocery stores specifically. Um, I, yeah, I also um, can't think off of the top of my head any restaurants I know that are owned by a grocery chain, but I absolutely think a tighter relationship between um, the between food service and the supply chain is really, really important. You know, this goes beyond just chefs who are dedicated to farm to table, who are dedicated to a 100 mile radius of the produce, right? You know, the, the important thing to note, especially in the case of New York, or rather the United States, is that it's not always a question of um, uh, practice or willpower because, you know, Tyson gets big enough so that if you're a small restaurant starting out and you, and you have to, you can only charge so much for your food. You're going to have to use Tyson, um, and so, for example, and so the the restaurant, not it's not just the restaurant industry, but the whole food um, system in the U.S. is really, really broken, and it's really difficult to um, break free of it um, uh, through through sort of the traditional means, right? And tiny small moves actually make a big difference. I had uh, friends who, for example, worked. Um, for quite a while in the sustainability arm of Chipotle, hoping to um, you know, learn about how they became one of the first um, sort of vaguely sustainable uh, fast food restaurants, um, but also how you can carry that into the next generation. And you, know, you make a tiny change, like um, I was speaking with uh, somebody who runs a large um, catering operation at a university, right? So like a cafeteria, you change your brand of salt and overnight, the entire campus consumes 25% less sodium. And sometimes it's just really practical tips. Like in this case, diamond salt is better than Morton's culture salt. Mm-hmm. It's just, um, and you don't even have to change the recipes, you know, the same one teaspoon is just 25% less salt um, because it's a lighter salt. So why not, why don't we just switch over to that? And so, you know, tiny things like this are sometimes very, very practical. Other times they're larger, more difficult questions like, oh, this is how we should, like pitching um, to Congress um, to look for restaurant relief, for example. It's a way more complicated problem. It's, it's, it's one problem that requires a more complicated set of solutions. There's a whole world of possibilities. And just sure. given your background and what you're setting out to achieve, I think a lot of people would rally behind that. So thank you, Lucas. Thank you, Nicole. That's it for this week's episode of Inner Wealth. I hope you enjoyed our conversation and that you'll join us next week as we continue to explore all the ways success is being redefined in our ever-changing world. Be sure to subscribe, rate, and review our podcast on your favorite podcast app. And follow us on Instagram at Forbes Ignite for more thought-provoking content and opportunities to engage with us. I'm your host, Nicole Kakal. Thanks for joining us.